Hello, listeners. I'm Marshall. I'm here with Steve. This is In Goodwill. This is a podcast where Steve and I have conversations about politics from across the political aisle. And it's not just about politics. It's about trying to take steps forward in terms of hearing each other from across the political aisle. The two of us are in a a good position to do this because we already have a friendship. And it's from this place of friendship and truly caring about each other that we are able to uh, bravely step over into the other person's world and try to see if we can find some commonalities that uh, will be useful for other people to listen to. Hi, Steve. (laughs) Hi, Marshall. Um, Always good to be connecting with you. Uh, yeah, I, I really love that explanation. And it's our hope also that we would be able to model this for our listeners, um, that we would be able to have people kind of step out and engage each other uh, and build those friendships. And I think friendship uh, breeds empathy. I do too. Um, yeah. And so getting close to each other, building those friendships, um, sometimes holding our tongues in order to listen better and giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, and uh, and then speaking with gentleness. Yeah, and that's a major difference that I see between having a conversation in person as opposed to being on social media or writing an article. Yeah. Because uh, you can't really hold your tongue when you're writing an article. That's not what the form allows for. Uh, That would just be some empty space or something and say, here, uh, you know, think about whatever you want to think about for a few paragraphs and then I'll get back into it. That wouldn't really work to try to hold your tongue in an article. Uh, It's a lot easier for me to to empathize and to uh, hear where you're coming from when you and I talk in person than it is for when I, uh, you know, when we try to communicate over Facebook or something, even though I like your Facebook posts, but. (laughs) <laughs> this uh, something's missing in our world. Sure, and hopefully you and I are gonna uh, demonstrate the beautiful thing that is missing, and maybe other people will have ideas sparked from what we're doing. Yeah, you know, you, you make good points. A, a tweet or a post is not going to convey uh, our emotions. It's not going to. Uh, convey our intentions and um, it doesn't allow you to kind of go, Oh yeah, I didn't quite mean it that way. Right. And so there's no chance for kind of going, Oh wait, no, I meant to say it this way. It came out that way. And so it really is then up to how the other person perceives it. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've certainly seen that recently in uh, some posts that I've made where I've tried to be gentle and I've tried to be unifying and, and help people to kind of get outside of their own echo chamber. And then it's led to some people being angry and offended and um, feeling yeah. like I did the opposite. So I, I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, but to me, this, this is something that happens to me unconsciously or half consciously throughout the day. I will get mad about something, maybe something that I read about in the news or the way that the news was reported. And it will just be this uh, compulsion to go on Facebook and vent about it in, in my own words and try to describe, you know, what's wrong with everybody else for the way that they're acting, whoever wrote this article or whatever the article is about in the news. And uh, Facebook is not it's not helpful for me to vent on there. When I have vented, it hasn't led to a bunch of people who didn't already agree with me saying, oh man, now I see where you're coming from. In fact, it's usually I'm imagining doing the opposite where uh, people are feeling alienated and they're feeling preached to in the way that I'm trying to vent. And and I see this happening uh, from so many people. And it, it just seems like a a really unproductive space, this social media. And so how can we put more productive, life-giving relationships into the world? Yeah. And I think part of it is we all might be approaching social media with the idea that it 
it is real relationships, you know, <laughs> right, it, yeah. it, it contains real relationships, often because we're becoming friends with people that we know in real life. Yeah, often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we would kind of think that they would give us that same benefit of the doubt. But there is something about social media that, that becomes faceless, it becomes nameless. Uh, and so even though you've been friends in real life, I just think there's this opportunity to misunderstand each other and talk past each other. Yeah. And there's no way to, to kind of come to the middle road because there isn't the interactive. And so I think that the actual relationship of sitting down face to face, like you said, um, is, is forming the real relationship. Yeah. Even doing it virtually like you and I are, I think there's a lot more opportunity for connection and empathy and productivity uh, when we're doing it via Zoom, yeah, rather than you know posting memes at each other. Not that you and I are that uh, <laughs> uncomplicated about it. You and I are pretty good at uh, trying to put better types of communication into the Facebook, but uh, it it doesn't compare to what we can do on this podcast or when we're hanging out together. Right. Amen. Yeah. All right. So we have a topic this week. It's something that I've heard you talk about a lot. You've mentioned it a lot in most of our episodes. And uh, I think that for somebody who doesn't have a background in Christianity or religion, I don't think they know what you're referring to. And what I'm talking about is when you mention image bearing. And so I thought we should do a whole episode on image bearing. And uh, first of all, I'd like to hear what you mean by it and why it's important to you. And then we can talk about what kind of um, commonalities or friction there might be in across the political aisle or between religious people and secular people. Well, let me jump in. So the image bearing image bearing is this idea that we have been made in the image of God and therefore there is a responsibility that comes with that, um, that we're not our own people. We're not just individuals who bear our own image and make um, decisions into the world on our own, but that because we've been made, because we've been created, that there is some ownership over us. There, there's a headship or a, um, a responsibility to answer to somebody for our decisions and our words and the way we live. Yeah. And that part of that responsibility is to reflect the nature and the character of our creator. So all of that sounds so theological, all of that sounds so dry and distant and The reason why I talk about image bearing is because I want to do the opposite, actually. Um, So often when people think about church and they think about um, uh, what they've experienced, they think a lot about rules. Yeah. They think about um, thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Yeah. And that it all seems very distant. It all seems very controlling and it seems uh, devoid of relationship. So it's sort of like uh, communicating over social media and somebody's telling you some rules and expecting you to follow them. And you're going to go, what the heck, man? Why should I want to do that? Um, yeah, and who are you to tell me to do that? And <clears throat> I think that the, the concept of image bearing is so much more fruitful, at least in the way that I am thinking of it, because it's... Uh, it really conjures up images for me of cultivation and how are we building into the world? How are we stewarding things well and not just stewarding money um, or literal objects, but how are we stewarding lives? How are we stewarding relationships that we want to take that uh, very seriously and be intentional about it? Yeah. I'm on board with that. Yeah. I, I can find um, overlap with my universal approach there. Uh, yeah, we did not bring ourselves into being, you know, as far as we know. It, it doesn't feel like we did anyway. And 
so what are we for? What What is the purpose of life? I do think it would be helpful for secular-minded people to consider this, or it might be fruitful, it might be interesting to consider, wait, are, are, am I the highest power? Are, are, are human beings the highest power? Did, are, did I bring myself into being? And did human beings bring themselves into being? I don't think anybody would say that they did. What are the ramifications then? What, what does that mean for our lives and how we want to live our lives? Yeah, it, it, really awesome question. So <clears throat> if we didn't bring ourselves into being and if we are created beings and if there is a creator who has spoken to us and said, hey, I want you to exhibit my nature, my character, my love for creation, the creativity with which I built things. Um, and and we're, I'm not trying to get into dogmatic approaches on that here. I'm just saying the basic concepts. Yeah. Um, then um, what does that look like to take that on uh, yeah. intentionally? And so uh, I, I think Scripture tells us uh, how that looks. And so the, the rules do at some point come into play, but the rules aren't there to be relationship-less. Um, they're, they're meant to be found within a relationship where you're walking um, with, with the living God um, and having a relationship with him. There, there's, a, there's a picture that I've got that uh, we had when our son Asher was very young and he was just starting to walk. And so it's just a picture of my wife and I holding his hands and you can just see our hands in the picture and our legs yeah. and then him. And he's looking up at one of us as he's kind of toddling along, letting us lead him. And it's this picture that I just treasure because of the dependence and the love and the, you know, looking for confirmation from the parent um, that is so apparent in that picture. <clears throat> and that's really what I see when I think of image bearing is like, I'm looking at my heavenly father and I'm saying, I want to look like you. Not in the sense that I want to take what you have and use it against people. Quite the opposite. Like, Lord, I want to look like you. I want to love like you. I want to build beautiful things like you do. I want to steward the things that you've put into my hands well. Uh, I want to use my home and my possessions for blessing other people. I want to make this world a more thriving, beautiful, ordered, productive place. Yeah, I like the sound of that. And, and I really want people to feel that way. And I think God does too. Okay, so you said uh, walking with the living God. And as somebody who thinks about things universally or probably, you know, more secularly than you do, <laughs> I like that idea. Um, walking with the living God, that I am not the infinite. I'm not the source. I'm not my own creator. And, but somehow I find myself alive and existing and conscious. And so I can um, kind of stay in my own world if I want to, but I don't know about you or some of our other listeners, I get a little bit uh, bored and I feel some ennui, like something is missing when I only stay in my own bubble. And so what's interesting to me is to uh, reach outside of my own bubble, to look outside of my own bubble and to connect with other people or other aspects of reality. And what happens when I try to connect with the most ultimate aspect of reality? What does that look like? And is it worth doing? I find it to be so. You know, I started off with more of a religious approach to this, and that wasn't a bad thing. And the way I look at it now is more universal, but I still, I still look at my, re my relationship with reality that way, as if it is a relationship. 
I read a really good book by Paul Tillich called Dynamics of Faith. And uh, I read it in the last few years, and I found it to be the best book on theology that I've read. And I, I went to college for theology. And I liked how he put, he put it this way, that um, we're not infinite. We human beings are not infinite, but we are related to the infinite. So we don't, we don't possess it, but we, we spring from it. We're connected in that way. And I don't know, I hope that's food for thought for listeners who might be um, turned away by rules and doctrine, but just philosophically thinking about who are we? How do we fit in? And is it worth thinking about that? I find it to be so. I think sometimes when we become dogmatic, um, and, and there's a place for, for guardrails. There, there are a place for, for theological guardrails. Um, but if we just approach things very dogmatically and we can't see <clears throat> beyond that, um, I think we, we can do a lot of disservice to the heart of what God is trying to get at. So, yeah. you know, I talk to people, um, whether they're believers in Jesus Christ or they're not, and they, they say, well, you read the Bible and stuff. And so, uh, you know, what's your favorite book? And I, uh, I often surprise them because I say Deuteronomy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Why, why Deuteronomy? <laughs> well, because in Deuteronomy, you're, you're looking at a, a treaty between God and his people. And in that treaty, there are rules, there are stipulations, there's a give and a take, there are responsibilities back and forth. There's a covenant forming, almost like a marriage that's happening there. But marriages aren't just contracts. They're not just dry things where you put a piece of paper together for two people. A marriage is really an emotional act, isn't it? It's really a, an act of how we feel about one another and what we're committing to each other for moving forward into the future. Technical question here. Yes. In, in the days of Deuteronomy, the people that that was written about and who wrote it, mm -hmm. how much was an emotion a part of that? Because from my understanding, what I've heard is that uh, this idea of getting married for love or for emotional reasons is a modern idea. And in the past, kind of the farther back you go, the more it becomes a, a practical matter of um, com combining with another family and raising children and the practicalities involved in that and trying to stay alive in a world that's harder to stay alive in than ours comes into play a lot more. What well, comes into play a lot more, and there are definitely cultural um, uh, contexts in which yeah, there were arranged marriages and whatnot. And so especially first century Palestine, that was definitely going on. Um, even the idea that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. That's that arrangement where you're not married yet. You're not allowed to sleep together yet, but you are devoted to one another. So in a sense, this is going to be your husband and he's going to begin to act like your husband, so you're going to go with him to uh, Bethlehem to be counted in the census. But and that was something that, was, that would happen from time to time in those days and in that part of the world. More than time to time, by that point in first century Palestine, it was pretty, pretty universal. So you'd be walking around and say, oh, I see that you're in this pre-marriage stage where you're you're not right. sleeping together. You're not, you're not doing the things that married people do, but you have this agreement. I mean, is that similar to being engaged in our modern world? Very similar. Yeah. Um, there, there are some differences and, and we've taken a lot of the constructs out of that uh, and the covenantal agreements between families out of it. So we still make it about love and just an agreement between two people. But, um, but there are similarities. Yeah. Uh, going back to to Moses' time, many, many, many centuries before that, it wasn't so much that way. So you're talking about a slave culture that is coming out of bondage from Egypt, and they've been led out of Egypt in a very dramatic way. And the nation of Egypt has been totally destroyed. 
So you've got these, this people who they're brought out by their God and they're brought to this place where God had met with Moses and said, I'm going to send you to Egypt. Now Moses leads them back to that mountain and God makes a treaty with them there. And so sometimes we call it like the 10 commandments as if that was the, the extent of it. And the reality is no, these are um, 10 basic concepts or what they'd call the words of God, but it was much broader than just 10, 10 things. As they're walking around in the desert, Moses is actually meeting with God at a place called the Tent of Meeting. It, it tells us in scripture that there's a cloud of, uh, or a pillar of cloud during the day. It becomes a pillar of cloud at night. It's the presence of God with them. It's leading them directly, almost like a father leads a child or a shepherd leads a sheep. And that cloud comes and settles at the Tent of Meeting when Moses goes in to meet with God. And God tells him what to write down. And so the people um, of Jesus' day, people even before that, the, the prophets, um, and most scholars up until the late 1800s all believed that God met with Moses, told him what to write in the first five books of the Bible. And so these are concepts that come down to us from God. And yet, what's so interesting about that is that they are written in human conventions. And so that's where some people go, they say, aha, well, that's exactly like such and such. So, you know, um, Deuteronomy is in the exact same format as an Egyptian Hittite treaty. Yeah. So why should we consider that there'd be any divine authorship behind it? It's just a human convention. Moses had been in the household of the Pharaoh. He was very educated. He would have known about these treaties and these covenants. He knows these different languages. He wrote this. So okay, what we're saying is that God met with him and worked with divine inspiration to tell what, you know, Moses what to write, and then Moses wrote it in his own words, with his own flair, with his own voice, and we see that all over the Bible is that these different authors speak with their own voice, they do. They're men writing things down, absolutely. And yet there are unifying themes and there are same words and same concepts that come up over and over and over again, where this, this book that is really a compilation of many books written over, uh, you know, well over a thousand years and through many generations has a continuity to it that is astounding. So what I'm hearing from you is that the, God spoke to people, and then people took their own uh, personalities and understandings to try to communicate what God said to them. Yes, and I would also use the term, you know, that God condescended to people. And I want to be careful because usually when we use that word condescension, we mean that we look down on somebody and, and think poorly of them, like that person's right. an idiot. But if you're God, then it's appropriate to condescend because you are truly above. That is, is the point. So think about all the technology that we have developed through the centuries, and so, you know, when you're talking about a Bronze Age culture that, you know, has arrows, but largely still uses rocks and, uh, you know, Bronze Age swords and, and spears, um, and you were to try to describe an Apache helicopter to them, like, how on earth would you begin to walk through the mechanics of this helicopter, what it's meant for, uh, what a, a pilot does, uh, fuel, you know, uh, yeah. and how do you get the fuel and how do you refine it and all those things. Yeah. It gets so complicated that it would be incomprehensible to them. What you're describing is what attracts me to conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. And I know it's a little bit different because in your world, what you're saying is the, the characters and the writers of the Bible had a, a special attunement to God that you're not going to find in just any old person. And I, I can accept that possibility, 
in my world, what's interesting is the possibility that any person I'm talking to has a connection to the infinite because they came from the infinite and they have their own imperfect and conditioned ways of trying to communicate. And so I like to look at each person as an expression of the infinite, of somebody, of, of God. How can I hear the God in the imperfect and sometimes tragic ways that this person is trying to communicate to me? Totally. And I would say the exact same thing. So it's not so much that um, Moses on his own account was special and therefore God spoke to him. God spoke to Moses um, because he wanted to. And even Moses says, I'm not the right guy for the job. You know, he, he it's a good says, sign. Yeah, right. <laughs> I only want to listen to people who have that attitude, you know. And isn't that the thing? So, like, um, when we talk about image bearing, part of this is humility. Yeah. Part of it is saying, I am not my own creator. I am not the arbiter of all truth. Right. Uh, I'm stumbling about in this world and trying to figure out how to live into it. And this sounds like science to me, what science is meant to be. Yeah. The spirit of science, which is uh, a humility and a willingness to say, I don't know, I'm, I'm an investigator. I'm going to try to figure out stuff. And what I know is subject to change because I am not the, I am not the thing that I am trying to study. I'm not, I'm not bigger than reality. I'm trying to look at reality and be honest about it. Yeah. And, and I would say that good theologians and good scientists tend to get along. Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, we keep being told that there's this war between science and faith. Right. You know, that's how it's often put, as if science was rational thought and faith was irrational. Right. And I'm interested in a rational faith. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm interested. And sure, there are things that I can't see. Um, there, there are things that I don't understand. And to say it the other way, I think um, honest scientists would say that they're not 100% attached to being rational in the sense that some of the things that we discover when we look as deeply as we can seem to be irrational. Some, some of the weird stuff that you find when you, when you get down on the quantum level and you try to, try to match what we see down there with what we see on the big uh, relative scale that Einstein was concerned with. Yeah. These things don't necessarily seem rational. So there's such a thing as... Um, coming to a religious faith with a certain amount of rationality. And there's a certain amount of coming to a scientific approach with uh, a humility and a humility that says, I might find some results here that don't seem rational to me. And instead of gripping too tightly to what I'm comfortable with, I'm going to try to accept the seeming irrationality of what I'm looking at. Yeah. I find it interesting that um, oftentimes I find biologists and um, geologists tend to skew atheistic. Mm -hmm. And yet when uh, I read a lot of physicists who seem to go, hey, wait a second, guys, uh, there seems to be a whole lot more out there than we really are giving this credit for. I think uh, sometimes people have been surprised in biology and geology just by the mechanics. Yeah. And I go, there's so much mechanics here. There's so much electrical, there's so much chemical interaction that is causing things that maybe it is just naturally sourced yeah. and developed. But when you start going into quantum mechanics and you start going into uh, how things work uh, in space and the relationship between moving bodies and uh, atomic matter and all of these things, people kind of go, whoa, there's so much more than what we can explain through natural means. Yeah. And, and, and humility tells us that there, the explanations behind this are, are probably a, a bit outside of our grasp. And so I find that quite a few physicists become theistic, maybe not Christians, but at least theistic and are far more conversant with, with Christians on, on some of these things. 
Yeah, I've heard some stuff to the same effect. YouTube often recommends stuff that's in that vein to me. Um, quantum physics and, and relativity videos. And yeah, it's pretty often that I see somebody who is a scientist. Maybe they've always been a scientist and um, they're not in it for philosophy or religion or faith, but they they say things like, wow, this is kind of helping me to understand where people of faith are coming from. And I, I maybe feel a certain amount of relatability now that I've kind of had my mind blown or my expectations so uh, challenged just by objectively looking at the world of matter. Yeah. When I had more of a specifically Christian faith, I was more on my guard about people who called themselves atheists. Hmm. And I had friends that were in that camp, friends and family. And uh, to me, that was an opportunity to, to argue and debate. And now that I've gotten older and I have uh, a somewhat different view uh, towards religion and that way of connecting with reality, I don't feel threatened anymore by the, by the people who are um, card-carrying atheists. In my younger days, I wouldn't have watched a video by like Sam uh, Harris or Richard Dawkins or something like that. Sure. And every once in a while, YouTube recommends something by them to me and I watch it. And when I watch those videos, I just think, man, what was I even worried about in the past? What these people are arguing against is basically idolatry. I mean, this was never my form of religion. They are arguing against people who have uh, a very rigidly literal conception of God. And it's not, it's maybe not even a caricature to call these people's God an invisible man in the sky. And to that extent, sure, I'm an atheist too. Uh, to me, that would be uh, a, such a rigid conception of, of God that it, it, I think it qualifies as idolatry. And I guess all this is to say that, to agree with what you're saying, that people who are honest and who are open-minded and humble, um, open-minded in the sense of humility, when they look at reality and they're willing to have a certain amount of um, bravery and discomfort, uh, they do tend to have a lot more overlap than the sensationalized war between faith and uh, rationality or, or faith in science is portrayed as having. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I think if all of us approach things with a bit of humility and a little bit of vulnerability, and be okay with there being questions. Yes. Um, I think that's a good thing. Me too. Um, I, I went through a phase in my life where I was very dogmatic and uh, uh, was very much the arguer. And uh, I've just come to a point where I feel pretty solid on some things, but it also, <clears throat> I'm realizing that the dogmatism has often not helped. Um, it's not speaking life and thriving into other lives. Yeah, um, I know what you mean. And so it's not that I'm moving away from the things that are core to my faith. It's that the approach is changing. Yeah. And so, you know, we've talked about matter and manner in the past. And yeah. I, I think you, we can hold on to our matters, but our manner means a lot. Yeah. So here's something I, I wonder if, I wonder if this would help. It seems like there maybe should be more of a place in society, in, in just in what we consider to be normal, for, ha for not knowing all the answers and for having some kind of lifeline that is a lifeline for you at this moment, but you don't have to convince everybody else that they should have the same lifeline um, in order for it to be legitimate. And I feel like not just in our uh, sphere of politics or religion, but just kind of all areas of society, I think we butt heads over this 
unnecessary and arbitrary um, scarcity that we have of in order for me to have a legitimate belief system, I have to um, prove it beyond a doubt to everybody that I come in contact with. And I have to try to convince everybody that that should be their belief system. When, when I look at my life, it's been a, a series of lifelines that were very useful to me. And then new information came along and something else became my lifeline. And in, in the pattern that my life has followed, it's, it's usually been um, an expansion. Like, uh, you know, it, it includes the old way of looking at things, but it also transcends that and has um, more space for different types of ideas. So in other words, when I read really rigidly dogmatic articles, whether they're rigidly religious or rigidly uh, political, what I hear is, somebody who whose toes I don't want to step on. <laughs> it's somebody who, it seems like they have found something that really tied two things together in their life that needed to be tied together. And for them, I don't want to yank that away from them. But unfortunately, the way that they're trying to legitimize their lifeline is by imposing it on other people. And that's when we can get into arguments because I have sure. a different lifeline or, you know, I don't want to, I don't, the way that you might be connecting two things is actually separating two important things for me. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So, you know, um, I guess in, in the way that I'm trying to approach things these days, it's not, um, it's not that I've shifted my belief structure. I just am trying to have more grace with other people. Yeah. Um, and I, one of the things that this image bearing concept uh, does for me <clears throat> is it paints a picture. Um, I, I found myself, I found difficulties in life in the last number of years that have caused me to long for beauty and long for artistic expression, um, uh, longing for better conversations um, in new ways. And so um, I guess this concept of image bearing as being this walking with God and cultivating the world around me and the relationships around me is something that I find really beautiful. And it's something that I think is attractive and I'd want other people to engage in too. And I, I kind of think that's why there's that storyline in the scriptures that it's not all just, you know, we've talked in the past about how so much of the Bible is not just here are the facts, you know, um, and, and um, you know, here they are for your scrutiny, but so much of it is meant to be mulled on and chewed on. You've got wisdom literature, you've got uh, psalms and poetry, and you've got um, poetic oracles, and you've got, um, you know, all this imagery that's put into the scriptures. Yeah. And if we just wanted an instruction book, why, why isn't it just written <laughs> right. like a manual? You know, yeah. this is what you got to do, yeah. do it or else. Yeah. And that's not how God intended this and, or superintended it. He, he brought in a lot of those concepts, you know, what and does that mean superintended? Well, the meaning like that inspiration, so you've got the intention of the author that's been superintended by God. Okay. And so he's working with the author to create this scripture gotcha. that all fits together without there necessarily being like this real self-consciousness of like, oh, well, you know, I've got these scrolls from this book, so I better make sure that what I write is in line with that. That wasn't happening. Yeah. And that's what's so unique is God speaking to a prophet. He goes and he speaks and somebody's writing down what they're speaking. And, uh, and yet it fits with what the Psalm said. It fits with what was written in Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Exodus. And you kind of go, oh my goodness, a thousand years later, this is happening. 
and um, and things are coming to pass that were foretold before. And um, and some people go like, no, that's just not even a possibility. That doesn't fit with my worldview. It doesn't fit into my box. I just can't believe that. And I get that. Um, I'm convinced that it's the truth, but um, after a lot of digging, yeah. But also, I've just seen how God works in those things and that beauty and how he threads things together in really amazing and unique ways and how he provides and he shows up and and things that I pray in my own heart that I haven't even spoken out into the world show up and happen. And it's just like, okay. (laughs) Um, And so it, it, it shouldn't surprise me by this point. It keeps on happening. And yet it still surprises me. And yeah. and so I say, I truly believe that there is a God. And I truly believe he has created us in his image to bear his image into the world, to be to bring on that responsibility and that stewardship, not in the sense of like, there are elements of judgment and those things involved, but that's not the point. The point is, is there a real love and relationship there? Is there a real desire for cultivation there? How do I cultivate the lives around me? How do I love well? How do I help a little seedling grow and and be nourished and bud out and fruit and create new little sprouts into the world? Um, That's the sort of image that I have in mind. And that's the story in Genesis of God creating the man and the woman and putting them into the garden so that they would till the soil and they would cultivate and they'd bring order out of chaos. And so there are these two uh, Hebrew words that are used in in Genesis chapter 2 about what the man was supposed to do. And that was um, to cultivate. um, And the other word is basically to to attend or to guard or another translation of that is to husband. Yeah. And so uh, what does a good husband do? A good husband is attentive. A good husband cares. A good husband shapes. A good husband and father, uh, you know, is productive and builds up his family and his children. Um, And that's the sort of words that are being used in the Hebrew of that concept of being an image bearer is God's productive. He's creative. He's made things good. Now humans, I'm giving you the opportunity to go and make them good too, and set them into order. Yeah. Um, as an artist, I can relate to that, that um, I can't create any of the elements that I work with as an artist, but I can quote unquote, create beautiful arrangements of them. I can arrange and put uh, elements into order, whether they're colors or sounds. Uh, I can, I can create things that make colors and sounds, but it's, uh, I didn't make the colors and sounds themselves. So I'm just somebody who cultivates and, and puts things into order. Yeah. Or chaos. <laughs> I like to put them into chaos sometimes. <laughs> so, are there areas where this issue of image bearing causes friction between conservatives and progressives? Yes and no. So, in in one sense, I don't hear very many people on either side arguing about it. Yeah, right. So I don't, you know, as you mentioned, what do you mean by image bearing? Not Mm -hmm. very many people are talking about that, whether conservatives or progressives. And so I don't think this is a big area of contention. And I think maybe that's one reason I love it so much. It's it's an (laughs) opportunity to have a conversation. And just the fact that you said, hey, Steve, you keep using this word. Uh, What does it, what does it mean? And uh, hopefully it's, uh, you know, not like... um, I do not think it means what you think it means, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just this concept is something that I think resonates in the human soul. Yeah, I would agree. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, who so many Christians love to, to quote, he's so quotable, yeah. uh, said that there is a God-shaped hole in every man. Yeah. And meaning 
Um, there is a search for meaning. There is a search for purpose. There's a search for something that's bigger than ourselves. And when we try to fill it with ourselves, we always come up lacking. Yeah. And we all feel that pinch. You know, when you have people who make billions of dollars and yet they're always searching for more. <laughs> yeah. Never satisfied. Right. Where does that come from? Well, they've reached the pinnacle and there's no way to go anywhere except further up. Yeah. But it drives them and it kills them at the same time. It seems to be the case. It's it's a trope in in TV and movies that rich people are unhappy. And that uh trope is is confirmed by I don't know, watching gossip shows or something and um even if that's kind of played up this idea of when you have a lot of money, you are miserable. The fact is there's no good example of somebody who got a lot of money and then, wow, this is really it. <laughs> like I've, I've found the key to everything I've wanted. Now, now I'm complete. Nobody says that, but that is what we're uh, pushed towards in, yeah. you know, advertisements and just our cultural mythology of, like, if only I had this thing that I can't afford, then I would be complete. And that just really isn't true. I mean, any of us who has gotten something that we've wanted, uh, you know, it's great. And then <laughs> we want something else. And I think that's okay. That's It's not like it's uh, something we need to do anything about that uh, these things that we want are not offering us complete fulfillment. I think it's just worth keeping in mind that they, they're only good in so far as they only go so far in their goodness. They only go so far in their goodness. I really like that. Um, uh, so, you know, in theological terms, there was somebody, and I don't know who the, the original coiner of this was, but they said a, a good thing, that becomes a God thing is a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. If, if you misprioritize, you put the worth on the wrong things, then life gets out of whack and you begin to serve the thing that was meant to serve you. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of money. I mean, isn't money supposed to help us get things that we need and to serve us? And I've sure spent a lot more of my time than I would like serving money. Yeah. You know, that that's the whole thing, you know, when, when people talk about, um, well, I mean, even the concept of like rich dad, poor dad. I don't know if you ever read that book. No, I but, don't know what that is. Oh, okay. There's a, there's a book out there, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And uh, uh, it talks about this fellow who um, uh, had two father figures in his life one who had a uh, mindset of scarcity and one who had a mindset of abundance and how the mindset of abundance saw money as a tool rather than seeing money as something you had to clamor off to, uh, after or hold mm. on to. Yeah. But you make it go to work for you and be productive for you. Yeah. And I think that's the way it should be with so much. And I think, again, with this image-bearing concept is if we are good stewards, Jesus tells a parable of, of talents. He calls them talents. It yeah. was a measure of money back in the day. And uh, so really briefly, one, uh, one servant, he gave uh, one talent. Uh, another servant, he gave three talents. Another servant, he gave uh, five talents. Not Jesus, but uh, a master of a household. You know, The person uh, in Jesus' parable, the master yes, of the household. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yes. And so, um, anyway, uh, the, the person with five went and invested and made five more. And so when the master comes back and goes and talks to the servant, the servant says, here, look, I doubled your money. And he goes, well done, good and faithful servant. He goes to the next one. Same thing happens. Person with three makes three more. Well done, good and faithful servant. He comes to the last one. And the last one has this attitude of like, I, I knew you were a hard man. Right. And uh, you, you reap where you have not sown. And so I didn't want to risk losing your money. And so I went and buried it. 
here it is. And the master calls him a wicked servant. Yeah. And people go, well, why, why was he wicked? Well, the, the wickedness wasn't that he didn't make more money. It was that he hated the master. He didn't trust the master and was more afraid of the master than in relationship with the master. And I think sometimes the dogmatism through which we approach things can lead to that heart, that mindset of we do things out of risk or we rebel because we, we don't have a relationship. But when you have a real relationship with a loving father, that changes things. And there's a trust there and there's a thankfulness there. And the stewardship comes naturally out of that because you want to please the father. And so that that's those are concepts that I have in mind when I think of yeah. image bearing. I think I overlap with how you feel about that. I, I wonder if you can confirm whether the word talent started with the definition that was used in the Bible and came to be what we now use the word talent for. Yes. And and what I think of when I hear that story is uh, we all have a certain amount of something to work with. Uh, relative to other people, it could be a lot or a little. And if we have a relationship with the source that we came from, we might be inspired to to do something with what we were given for the benefit of all. Yeah. And it would be tragic if we didn't use what we have in order to, um, I don't know. I don't, I can't actually relate to the person who buries the talents. I don't, I don't know where that person's coming from there. Oh, but here's what I think was even more relevant is the uh, applying this to being dogmatic. So if, if I have a, a lifeline or a map of reality that really serves me, it's, it's really gotten me from a place that was worse to a place that's better. And I'm so narrow about communicating that map that other people say I can't relate and they're alienated. To me, that sounds like burying the talent. But if I take the talent and make it multiply by doing different types of things that are in the same vein as the lifeline that helped me, then it expands outward and I can find other areas of life that this same approach to life uh, produces, is, is fruitful in. So, you know, what was hard for me, it was a growing experience for me when I was first learning Christianity, was just reading Jesus and getting a clear message of I think I'm being asked to do things that are in the same vein as what he's doing. And then uh, when I would do something that I, in good faith, saw as the same kind of thing as Jesus would do, often there would be people who were more rigidly religious, who were, uh, it seemed like they were afraid of what I was doing. And they would tell me, you can't do that. And without criticizing them too much, you know, it, it might be the case that I was off base. But let's say I wasn't. It reminds me of the story of Jesus. What is he doing? He's, he's picking some fruit or picking some grain, grain. Out, yeah. out in the field. <laughs> and some Pharisees who were the religious elites of the time, uh, the real hard and fast rule followers and imposers, they came along and said, hey, you can't be picking wheat on the Sabbath or grain or whatever it was. And he said, you know, uh, the, the Sabbath was created for us, not us for the Sabbath. Right. And in this situation, to me, this was Jesus doing a certain act that sprang out of a care for all human beings and uh, an act that says the, the, th- the tools that we use, such as the Sabbath, are tools to help us. And if those things become... Uh, just a thing that we're serving to our detriment. And in this case, it would be like, you know, somebody didn't get fed on, on Sunday or Saturday. Uh, then that's a real problem. 
And, and I'm in total agreement. So there, there are places where we can draw lines around things. We can make rules around rules around rules. And in order to try to keep everybody in line and in the process, totally miss the heart of God in wanting people to grow and thrive and be fruitful into the world. And so, um, and in one sense, we can say, hey, we did this for God. And yet our hearts are far from what he's really intending. And so we become so focused on rules. And, and I tend to be a high rule person, okay? So I, I have a tendency to, to, to be a little hard on myself and to kind of try to sure. keep myself within, in, within bounds on things. Yeah. But, um, but I also need to hold that intention with this this love and this encouragement and this desire to see things grow and be fruitful that God has. And so, yeah, there are guardrails that he's put in place, but those guardrails are meant to help us thrive, not meant to limit us and keep us oppressed. Yeah. And And I I would say that what you're just saying right there about guardrails I think that applies to any area of life, not just uh, Christianity or religion. So if we have listeners who are just like, well, he's talking about God and I don't, I don't have the same guardrails. I think it applies to any guardrails that we use in whether it's our uh, personal philosophy or our parenting philosophy or our business philosophy or whatever it is, our, um, our ideas about, law and order. Our guardrails can be helpful or they can be um, idols that, that are served rather than things that serve us. That's a really healthy and good, good way to look at that. I, uh, I've, I've said to believers that the Bible is not meant to be the object of our worship meaning it, we're not here to serve the Bible. The Bible is here to serve us. And that doesn't mean get rid of the Bible or get loosey-goosey about the Bible. That's not my point. My point is um, that it is a lens through which to see the living God, not the objective itself. Yeah. And sometimes I see people get so dogmatic with the Bible, they get so clobber you over the head with the Bible that, where's the life? Where's the love? Where's, where's the, the very heart of God for humanity that, um, that desires to see all people thrive? And yeah, guardrails are there to keep us from going off the cliff, you know, or, or uh, being self-destructive. Um, and and it's they're the there. Clobbering. You know? It's the clobbering over the head that is the problem. Right. And uh, right now, uh, Christians and other types of people of faith uh, get a lot of flack for clobbering over the head. But really, in just about any area of life, we all know people who clobber us over the head with the way the thing, with their way that they think things should go. And uh, it's helped me to try to look at myself. Am I clobbering anybody over the head? And uh, that also helps me to have a certain amount of patience for people who clobber others over the head. <laughs> it's yeah. easier to have that patience when I'm not in the middle of being clobbered over the head by them. Yeah, and and it's interesting because I think some people are looking for clobbering matches. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I think I used to engage in that far more often, and I'm just like, I don't have time for that anymore. <laughs> yeah, same so, here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Steve, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And you too, Marshall. Thanks, thanks so for, much for the um, opportunity. Thanks for delving into a topic that is important to you and that you've brought up a lot and that I'm sure you'll bring up a lot in the future. Sure. And uh, I hope you listeners have gotten a better understanding of what Steve is talking about when he refers to image bearing in our conversations. And if you have questions, please get a hold of us. You can reach us through an email that I use for questions in uh, other areas of life. And that email is askmarshallb. That's A-S-K-M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-B. 
as in Marshall Bolin, askmarshallb at gmail.com. Feel free to send any questions our way that you uh, want us to talk about on future episodes, or if you have comments of, um, you know, feedback of how the podcast is going or just something you want us to know, we'll be in communication with you. Okay. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.